Welcome. You are listening to the All Gestalt Podcast. My name is Dr. Stephanie Goldsmith, and I am your host. And today I have with me two guests, Dr. David Narang and Dr. Nellie Nasser. It is our very first episode, and we are going to tackle the big topic of what is Gestalt therapy. Welcome, guests. Thank you. Thank you for having us. David, do you want to introduce and say a little bit about yourself and who you are? Sure. I'm uh, David. I am a psychologist in private practice in Los Angeles, and I work with adults, depression, anxiety, trauma, and also a lot of couples. Um, so I've been with GATLA, which is our Gestalt Institute, since 2001, and um, looking forward to just getting our podcast series started today. Hi, welcome, Nelly. Do you want to introduce yourself and say a little about who you are? Sure. Um, I'm also a clinical psychologist. I have been with GATLA since 2008, and I work in uh, group practice, and I also have a private practice, and I work also only with adults, individual and couples therapy um, that present with a range of issues such as like mood disorders, anxiety disorders, trauma, loss, grief, and I am very excited to be here as well. Let's talk Gestalt. Let's talk Gestalt. Well, welcome both of you. And I'm excited to tackle this uh, topic of what is Gestalt therapy, because something I've noticed over the years is how difficult it is to define. Any thoughts about that? I'm curious if you run into that issue as well. Absolutely. <laughs> With all the years that I've been studying Gestalt, I still find it difficult to really define it in very simple, brief ways because it is so complex and there's so many facets to it that it can be somewhat difficult to make it very concise. Having a 30-second elevator speech about what, what do you do, what's Gestalt is a little tricky, but yeah. we'll we'll try. Okay. Yes. <laughs> and Steph, did you want to, did you want to kick off or were you asking for thoughts? Well, I can kick off with, with a, with a definition that I've cobbled together. And the good news is because we have some time together, we don't have to do that 30 second elevator pitch, but I've noticed myself kind of freezing when people say, well, what is this gestalt thing that you do? And I'm like, well, it's this kind of experiential thing where it's relational and I always find myself bumbling over it. So um, I thought it would be nice for us to really uh, spend some time together and, and, and talk about it in some detail. But I can cobble together or, or share with you what I've cobbled together in terms of my definition that makes sense. And then I'd love for us to talk about it a little bit more and see what you might add to it. Um, but what I've come up with is that Gestalt is a holistic style of therapy that focuses on helping clients gain awareness of their individual processes. Gestalt therapists aid in the achievement of awareness by inviting authentic dialogue between the client and the therapist, by considering the client's experience in the context of their life, and then greater contributing global factors like their environment, their families, their culture, and then by in exploring their individual phenomenology. The client learns to become aware of what they do, how they do it, and the impact of their patterns on their well-being. This allows the client to be the expert on their own experience, and the therapist will act as a curious and compassionate guide. What I like about that is that it's not really that hierarchical. We're really looking at the client being the expert on their experience, and then we help kind of hone and sharpen and guide. So I like to think of it as helping the client discover their owner's manual so that they understand themselves better and can make more adaptive choices based on their unique needs. 
And then when someone knows their process really well, they can adapt and troubleshoot in the moment. So the maintenance of gains is really high. Once they understand kind of how they do what they do, when they come up to similar situations in the future, then they can say, oh, I know this about me and I know how to take care of myself in these kind of situations. So I like that it's something that has really long-term adaptive results. One thing I appreciate it uh, about it is that the purpose is it, it includes people getting rid of symptoms, feeling less anxious, feeling less depressed, things like that. Gestalt goes a good bit beyond that to really helping people become fully who they are. And that to me is really the exciting part about Gestalt. It's never boring. And that's partly because it's really about helping people go deeper, exploring who they are and um, being being in the journey with them as another human, not just as a technician or someone operating on them. I, I really appreciate the helping the clients be more aware of their needs in the service of their self-regulation. Like, and just to piggyback on what both of you have said, the idea of uh, looking at the person as a whole in order to improve their quality of life. Um, so yes, they come in with symptoms, um, but we're not just looking at alleviating the symptoms in the moment. Um, once with Gestalt tapping into process, it goes beyond the symptoms and it is much more long-term. Um, so even when they stop the therapy, they become in a sense, their own therapists being aware in future instances when something does come up that, oh, I recognize that process in me, irrespective of what the content piece is. And for example, like Les Greenberg, when he was doing something closer to Gestalt and he would research our model, he found that the depth of experiencing was our mechanism of change. It was the thing that predicted a better outcome so that we're really going deeply with the client into who they are, into their own experience. And the more that we help them do that, the more that they're going to grow from the process, which I think is a really interesting sort of exciting mechanism of change. Mm -hmm. And, and, to, and, the idea of the here and now that is so central to Gestalt is that helping the clients be more aware in the moment, in the session, whenever they are experiencing something, that's what's creating the movement to help their awareness piece. I agree. We are looking at all aspects of a client's experience, not prizing any one thing over another. You know, you mentioned Les Greenberg a minute ago, who's the founder of emotion-focused therapy. And when he kind of moved away into his own model, he really looked at emotional process very closely, which is lovely, but I feel like it kind of does that at the expense of other parts of experiencing. But we teach people to embody their process, not just to think about it. Mm -hmm. You know, so something that feels really different is I feel like a lot of other therapies are really good at helping people understand why they do what they do. You know, oh, when I was little, this was the family I grew up in and I learned these values and this is why I do this thing. And they get a really good understanding of it, but it doesn't always alleviate the distress. They continue engaging in problematic patterns because they haven't updated those messages or checked if it still fits in their current context. 
What we do in Gestalt that feels different is we have them embody what is it to be somebody who lives these values and do they still fit the current context that you're in now, the relationships you are in now, the age that you are in now. And I feel like this is something different that Gestalt does that a lot of other therapies don't really uh, attend to very well. To pull up the old messages that were absorbed, what we call interjects, and um, make them comfortable make them up to date with who we are now so that we follow, in a sense, our own rules. And our own rules, of course, are responsive to the world around us. We would like to have some good connection with the world around us, but we still need to update how we interact with the environment around us, not based on some sterile old rules that we absorbed when we were five. Um, And, you know, the other thing that I, I think that I enjoy there is that we're really not looking at it just conceptually. We are looking at that rule as it surfaces in the moment so that if someone believes they're supposed to be pleasing and we notice them pleasing us, that we comment on it and look at the root and it pulls up the root, the historical root, but we're not discussing it conceptually. We're doing it with awareness so that they can experience themselves doing it now, which gives them choice, choice out of having a deeper experience, not just, not only the intellectual awareness. You guys are tapping into um, character and how character forms. What I love about that piece is that when we are young, we develop certain ways of coping in our environment for the sake of survival. And those ways are healthy, very healthy. And I've really experienced clients that I've worked with feel a sense of relief when they hear that, okay, whatever the way we develop had a purpose that it was serving back in the day, but that behavior became very habitual and became out of our awareness. So we continue doing it throughout our lives, even though our context has changed. And so bringing it to the awareness in session to have the client notice in the moment when they are engaging in something and check in with themselves if it still works for them, if it still serves them or not, and with the choices that they have to do things differently. Right. If we are following the same rules that we developed when we were five or 12, they don't work for us in our 20s, 30s, 40s and beyond. But we don't think about it because, again, we, we use the term character, but we also use procedural memory, which basically the same idea, but it's become so procedural, you know, because our brains like to shortcut things. We don't have a lot of energy in our brain. So the sooner we can kind of make something automatic, the more adaptive we can be. But the problem with that is when something becomes automatic and it no longer serves, then it becomes problematic. So if you learned that you had to please using David's example from a minute ago, if you learn that you had to please to get your needs met or to be safe in your environment, That's just the way it is. This is how I get my needs met. But if you're older and you recognize, well, I feel like I need to please, I'm compelled to do that to get my needs met, that person might end up getting treated like a doormat. And they don't understand why people don't care for them or why they consistently get hurt or abandoned or forgotten. They're not recognizing, oh, this need to please no longer serves in my new context. The goal of choice being, it's not pleasing is now it was good and it's now bad the goal would be being aware oh i'm doing that pleasing thing 
which in some circumstances might be a wonderful thing to do now. Uh, but in other circumstances, like Stephanie's saying, might be very harmful and set somebody up to be damaged by someone who is, is cruel. So we want them to have that option to be who they would like to be, depending on the context and to and, match the behavior to the context. And also the recognition that when I am pleasing and I am valuing other people's needs over mine, my needs are not being met which can be a very important risk factor for people developing depressive symptoms as well, among others, obviously. That's a big one. Well, a lot of, a lot of clients come in. I'm, I'm sure you have similar experiences. We're all clinicians here actively working with clients in our daily lives. Clients come in and they say, I feel a way I don't want to feel and I want you to get rid of it. I'm depressed and I don't want to be depressed anymore. I'm anxious. I don't want to be anxious anymore. Um, I have these relationship styles. I'm avoidant and I don't want to be avoidant anymore. And I feel like I have to, to provide a little bit of psychoeducation of it's not that we can get rid of these things. I don't know how to make it so that you'll never be depressed again. I don't know how to make it so that you'll never feel anxiety again. I don't know how to make it so you'll never want to avoid a bad situation in a relationship again. Those, those things I don't think are reasonable goals, but what is reasonable is to look at, well, when depression comes along, how do you treat yourself? How does it perpetuate? How do you depress in your depression? We kind of make it a, a, a verb instead of a noun so that we look at the active process of being depressed or the active process of being anxious or you know, fill in, fill in whatever the, the presenting problem is. And we work with them to recognize what is their own unique experience and their own unique contributing factors so that if they feel depression, they can recognize it, they can treat themselves better, they can seek better support and resources. And then usually those processes don't last as long and aren't as devastating once they understand their process and they can work with it more adaptively in their current environment. And I'm curious of your thoughts about that, because I'm assuming you have clients that come in and say, fix me. <laughs> and then I feel like we have to we have to kind of give them a different set of expectations. And, and a lot of different modalities also cater to that expectation of several that are out there are very solution focused. So yes, fix me. Come, let me tell you what you can do differently to help you get out of the depression that you're in. And that obviously does work. Um, but it may work more short-term than long-term. And that's what I personally love about Gestalt is that it really taps much more into process than the content of what is going on in that specific moment. So yeah, I completely agree with you that when somebody is presenting with depression to really help them look at, obviously, other than the biological piece of it, like if we're just looking at the psychological part of what is what are contributing factors that are leading the person to experience depression. Some of them may be environmental. And it's also important to look at what the person is doing themselves. Example, uh, let's say retroflecting or deflecting their needs. And I'll talk about those two in a second. But when they are not valuing and prioritizing those needs, that's a gigantic risk factor for depression, for somebody developing depression. So just as a side note, retroflection is when we turn the energy inwards towards us that's supposed to go outwards. So for example, holding something in, uh, for example, if we don't allow ourselves to cry, we are retroflecting our emotions. If we're not verbalizing our need, we're retroflecting our need. 
And deflection is just avoiding. It's some of those are some of the interruptions that we see in the Gestalt um, theory. Deflection is when we avoid addressing something, when we push it away and we don't embrace it and make it a part of us. One thing I say about that too, again, you know, with Gestalt's emphasis on dialogue, that the therapist is part of the work. It's not just lip service to sort of give a pleasant ring to what we do. It's integral. So if someone is doing something and we can see it escalating their anxiety live in session, and that strikes us, we don't want to discuss it only in terms of, of a concept of what they did. We want to let the person know that we are ourselves, for example, feeling more anxiety or however we're relating to their process in that moment that we're being impacted by it and that we're noticing something happen to them. And for them to be able to have a chance to react to our reaction so that it really is this interaction between us working this out together. I love that you brought in the idea of dialogue because I think this is like one of the major pillars in Gestalt and it really sets it apart from other modalities uh, where we are part of the work. We show up with our own phenomenologies, how we are impacted in the room by the client. Um, I think it gives the client a very unique experience of getting feedback from their environment in the therapy session, which they may not be getting outside. And at the same time, it really enhances the contact between the therapist and the client. And, and obviously what we do end up sharing and we, what we put in the work is uh, hopefully in the service of enhancing the client's awareness and improving their well-being. I uh, supervise uh, students and interns and I get a lot of feedback from them like, really, I can say something about myself? And I'm like, yeah, how refreshing is that? You don't have to pretend. You don't have to hold back. You can be you in the session. And again, another thing I love about Gestalt is me, the therapist, and me, the person. There's not that big of a difference. And we are shoulder to shoulder in there. Yeah. And with that, I think that the client experiences are warm. Whoever we are as a person, there's less isolation. So there's there's a sense of, of power of both working on this together. I, yeah. find, I find myself smiling at this part of this because I think it's actually one of my favorite parts about being a Gestalt therapist mm -hmm. is the permission to be me. I remember watching my mentor, Todd Burley, do a piece of uh, Gestalt therapy for the first time, watching him do a session. And my mind being blown because he was just a human, you know, talking to another human and being so available. And that for me was my my Cinderella shoe of, oh, this, this, this is the type of therapist I want to be. I want to be somebody who can really sit with and hold for somebody else and still be allowed to be me. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's not that we share our content. It's not that we come in and seek support, but we, you know, with, with our clients, right, we do have that kind of clinical or I'm sorry, like professional boundary, but we still bring our humor. We still bring our personality. We still bring how they impact us into the work. So it's a very relational, very human, very collaborative therapy. It's not, I'm the expert. 
this is your diagnosis. Here's your treatment. Call me in the morning. It's yeah. very much a let's work together to find out who you are, how you work. And you can use me as somebody to bounce this off of. And I will give you my honest experience being with you, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, for the sake of moving forward and helping you become aware and generate more choice. And like Stephanie is saying, it adds to the complexity of our model because how much we share of our experience of the client depends on things like how fragile or stable they currently are, the history of our relationship together, what we know injures them, does not injure them, all sorts of things in the relationship between. So it makes the model a bit more interesting, although it does make that 30-second elevator pitch harder because <laughs> it's part of what goes into the thought process is where, where am I in this person? What can I say? What should I probably withhold? And where is that line in this session with this person? I was just going to add that that also like Gestalt is also beautiful in places where ruptures do happen in clinical work. Uh, let's say if we do share something that does not land very well on the client, I think adopting the Gestalt stance of being committed to dialogue and working through the difficulty of something and being interested in how what we say lands on the other, what comes up for them, and us being open to getting that feedback and working through it, I think is essential and very important in the Gestalt world and in our work with clients. Gestalt therapy isn't always socially polite because we are looking at real processes that cause people problems. So if somebody really can't keep relationships, and they don't know why, but it's very obvious to us when we meet them that we know why. We can find out how somebody's maybe abrasive or offensive or rubs you the wrong way. It's our job to be able to bring that into the work, but we bring it in compassionately. I bring it in compassionately. It's for the sake of learning and growing, you know, and I'm, I'm always respectful about it, but I'm not always polite in that I don't hold back that knowledge. I don't try to just make them feel better. Oh, you're lovely. I don't know. Everybody else is wrong, which I think a lot of us would be socialized to do. But instead we we come in and we say, well, I'm noticing that something that happens between us is, is sometimes irritating or grating. I'd like to gently put that out with you so we can look at it together because maybe this is part of what's contributing. You know, so I ask permission, I share, but there's there's an inclusion. I've included my experience and I'm committed to talking about something difficult with mm -hmm. somebody for the sake of their growth. And I think mm -hmm. that that is, is a really important, critical aspect of what makes Gestalt therapy different from a lot of other therapies, because there really is that commitment and that inclusion aspect of the connection. Which can be very surprising when people hear that and... It's very powerful. Um, like even going along uh, the lines of the, uh, it's not socially polite, even helping a client sit with a difficulty that they're facing, such as owning, let's say, I have cancer. And just saying that and sitting with it can be very, very healing for somebody to, to have that experience and difficult at the same time. Like we talk about the paradoxical theory of change is people 
what you said before, they come in and they say, fix me. I want to be in a place that's different than where I'm at. And as a result, they get stuck. But when we try to help them to embrace exactly where they're at, that's when change starts to happen. And part of our support function, being shoulder to shoulder with them the way that we are, we can help them have more capacity to hold those really difficult things in life, really overwhelming emotions, because we're doing it together, but genuinely together. So something that they might not have been able to process on their own because it's just too large to absorb, they can metabolize when we're with them. I think is a really important aspect of this. It's I'm committed to looking at all of the uncomfortable experiences with you. It's different than, so I'm a clinical psychologist and I was trained in a, in a pretty medicalized model, which is, you know, here's diagnosis. Here's how you treat it. Here's OCD. And this is how you treat it, right? Here's depression. This is how you treat it versus let's look at the full systemic contributions, you know, and this way, I like your, your terminology, David, we sit shoulder to shoulder and we really make space for that experience that's happening for them anyway. You know, whether we talk about it or we don't, it's happening for them anyway. So when we do talk about it, now we have an opportunity for it to come into awareness and start to become malleable, something that they can now change, something that they can now make choices about because they've become aware of what that issue is. And as that clarity, as they sit with that and deepen their awareness of that emotion, and deepen their awareness of what's behind that emotion, the clarity builds, and they feel some sense often of power, some sense of just internal strength around that difficult thing that they have to deal with. We can't, of course, alleviate and just pluck out that difficult thing they've got to deal with. That would be lovely. Well, in some ways it would be lovely. In some ways it would rob them. But when we help them deepen and stay and they build that clarity about this is what I'm going through, this is what's behind it. And you can feel that pleasure sometimes that people have in, oh, this is what's going on with me. That's also a lovely moment. Yeah, there is that really rewarding aha moment where they say, this is the thing that was missing. And now I have a map. Now I have a choice. Now I I can see that it can be different than how it was. Remember people, when they, when they act procedurally or characterologically, they're not aware of any other choices. This is just how it is. It's like you open up a door to a completely different possible way of being. You know, as we're talking about all of this, I'm sitting with some gratitude to the breadth and depth of this this theory and some sadness as well, because when I ask other clinicians, like, what do they know about gestalt therapy? Most of the time I get the answer, oh, isn't that like where you do the empty chair exercise? (laughs) And so... (laughs) It's sad that it's not just, that's just the one technique, but that technique is based in so much theory that is so rich and that informs that one specific technique. I I feel like it's a very kind of misunderstood modality. 
You're right. I hear empty chair and I hear, wait, something about the sum being greater than the whole of the parts. And that's it. Yeah. It's this whole beautiful world that I've seen people have like really lasting, incredible choice and change in their lives. And it's so misunderstood what we do. If they were lucky, they've seen the Gloria tapes, those old tapes of uh, Fritz and Carl Rogers, and I forget one other person. Albert Ellis, I think. Oh, was that it? Ellis, yeah. So that was a character. Um, and yeah, I, I again, it was it was a piece of Gestalt work, but it's not the piece of Gestalt work. And, and it's not current Gestalt work. It's not how we work now, <laughs> not um, like Fritz in the past. <laughs> yes, brilliant brilliant what what Fritz Perls came up with but it has been updated considerably since his time and I also think so much about what's going on in those tapes is about him and his personality you know that that was a lot of what people saw that they sometimes find abrasive in the Gloria videos with Fritz was his temperament his personality and you know, I want to say, hey, that was Fritz. But a lot of us who do Gestalt therapy, we we just have different temperaments or humor or sense of being in the room. So it will look gentler or it will look, you know, differently. I use a lot of humor in my work because that's part of my personality. Of course, depending on the client, <laughs> some are more amenable to it than others. But um, it's so personality driven because we are asked to show up authentically mm-hmm. and not to show up just as expert. The robot, yeah robot well you know one other thing i wanted to say also about the different experiential therapies when gestalt came into being it was that didn't exist we were in contrast to psychoanalysis and then behaviorism now fortunately there are many more experiential therapies that really help people deepen their experience of themselves in I think actually it's it's um, a, a good experience to be trained in those different narrower band experiential therapies. So this is not at all a knock on those therapies. For example, internal family systems where we're focusing on parts work, the somatic therapies where we're focusing on body process, emotionally focused therapy where we're really working on attachment as it unfolds live between a couple often, but even within the individual. Again, those are all valuable experiential processes. But what I do appreciate about Gestalt is that we don't assume in advance that it's body process or parts work or somatic processes that are the relevant thing for that particular client at that particular moment in time. Even if we ourselves identify more with one of those types of work. We don't impose that on the client. We work phenomenologically to see where they interrupt themselves. And if it's body process, we're going to go there. But if it is anything else, we will let them lead us to where they need to go. So while I think that it's great to be trained in those narrower areas, and I think it's important, actually, I also think it's important not to assume the relevance of any of those particular things. And I'll also, if I may add to that, that what I think also distinguishes Gestalt from other modalities is the idea that we don't interpret a client's experience. 
that we're merely in the room noticing, observing, sharing without telling the client, we know better what's going on with you than you do. And here's what we're going to tell you what's happening. So I also appreciate that piece a lot. And again, that we bring in our own experience when relevant, not always, but that we bring our own experience. Does make it feel quite different. Yeah. And if we do have an interpretation, we bring it in as our property, not Correct. as fact. As know, a hypothesis. Yeah. As a hypothesis for us to check out together, which again, is that shoulder to shoulder aspect. Is that really collaborative, non-hierarchical aspect of the therapy? But I do think that Gestalt therapy lends very well to integration. So some of these other modalities that David was talking about, they are such wonderful, rich ways to add to Gestalt therapy. I love IFS. I use parts work all the time. I'm a trauma therapist, so it's extremely useful for me. You know, I love EFT, emotion-focused therapy. I love somatic work. You know, I've read these things, taken these trainings, but my my first language, so to speak, is Gestalt. And I integrate aspects of these other things because they're just really useful tools, but it's not my base layer. My base layer is Gestalt. And it doesn't go against Gestalt. No. no. Exactly. So they complement each other very well. Yeah. Gestalt has a wide, wide availability for integration and inclusion. The only way that a therapy would really violate Gestalt, whether they're experiential or otherwise, from my point of view, would be if they're not phenomenological, meaning we're making assumptions about someone else's experience and who they are, rather than pulling it from them to find out from that person. We can make guesses like Steph was saying, we weren't born yesterday and we've met, we may have met this person on a number of occasions, but we do want to leave them room to actually be who they are, not who we need them to be based on our need to know. I agree. And hopefully we'll do another episode in the future on, on the three pillars. So we can talk a little bit more about, you know, the really unique lens that Gestalt uses. But as, as we wrap up here, I, I get asked a lot, like, why don't, why aren't there more Gestalt therapists? You know, why is it rare? And I say, well, it's kind of rare in the United States. It's not rare in other parts of the world, but it's, it's not as common. And the one answer that I've come up with, and I'd be curious about your thoughts is it's really hard to learn. (laughs) It's very, very hard to be good at Gestalt therapy because it requires so much from the therapist learning how to do it in order to be able to provide it very well. And it's also a theory that is very hard to operationalize. If we were trying to quantify it, we can qualify it. But if we were trying to quantify it, it would probably kill it. We can't put it in numbers because it is a living, breathing, phenomenological therapy. Those are my thoughts on it. And I'd love to bring the both of you in and and know what you think about it as well. I think for me, primarily, it is the research component. Along the lines of what you're saying, Stephanie, that um, it's hard to do research on Gestalt, even though research is being done, but it's not, let's say, where CBT is. Like people around the world hear about CBT, study CBT in schooling even. So for a clinician to be exposed to Gestalt, I think it starts in the schooling system and the schooling, the graduate schools all follow evidence-based, evidence-based. And Gestalt has a lot of, um, not a lot, some research that is showing its efficacy and how it's evidence-based, but we're not there yet fully. 
to really encourage people to study it in more in depth. I think for me, along the lines of your experience, when I saw Bob Resnick, one of the founders of Gatla, do a piece of work, it's the seeing it live that I was like, oh my God, that's what I want to do. Like, this is beautiful. But if I just read about it in a book, it's not going to pop out to me. And I think that's the missing piece. And the more we educate people and we show people how this works and we do more research, hopefully that will attract more clinicians to Gestalt. It's interesting what you say there, Nelly. When I was in my doctoral program, I was cognitive behaviorally oriented. And then I was on internship and I was co-leading groups for adults with personality disorders with my supervisor. And she was a strongest Gestalt supervisor. And I was blown away by what she was doing. I didn't really understand it, but I saw the (laughs) impact on the clients Uh and I was really intrigued and it looked complex and interesting, but also it was having an impact Yeah, that grabbed me. Otherwise, from what I'd read in, you know, basically the, the, the usual grad school books, Mm -hmm. I had no interest. It was a footnote and I wasn't interested. Exactly. Yeah, I think the live work is is what shows the aha. And mm-hmm. I, what I appreciate about our training, so all of us are faculty for Gestalt Associates Training Los Angeles, which is a training program in Gestalt therapy. One of the things that's really spectacular about that is the ability to consistently watch live demonstrations and also to act as a therapist with a client and get live supervision or when you're training to be a client and to see what it's like to experience gestalt therapy, which I, I mean, my experience feels like nothing else. <laughs> I have, I have had as a client, I've had therapists in other modalities and it was fine. It was supportive. But once I had gestalt therapy, it's like, well, that's it. <laughs> I'm ruined <laughs> for any other therapy because I'm like, this is the thing that really works. This is the thing yeah. that really gets to that, the core aspects of, of my needs and how I operate in the world. That stuff with what you're saying. And I was just training a Gatla's introductory group a couple of weekends ago. One thing I was repeating in different ways to try and help them was that Gestalt is a beast. And that is what you were referring to before. Gestalt is, is not a grab and go. You have one weekend seminar and you know how to do it, and you know all the underpinnings. It is not simple, and it's not for the faint of heart. It's not for someone who isn't willing to humble themselves and be real, and yet also be powerful. Um, And there's just a lot to the theory. There has to be a repetition going into it again and again and again before it really seeps into the pores and becomes part of you. But for those who want a little adventure, depth, and something authentic, authentic, potent is part of what I was thinking also. Yes, it, it does feel satisfying to dig into. 
Well, I mean, we 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 have all drank the Kool-Aid <laughs> over a decade, but it's probably one of the hardest things I've ever invested in and also, you know, by far one of the most rewarding things. And I'm very, very grateful to have found this world and to really built a home in it. And I'm very grateful to have amazing friends and colleagues like you, Nellie and David. So with that, I would like to thank you both so much for doing this very first episode. Hopefully there'll be many more, um, but this very first episode with me. And um, I've enjoyed talking about what is Gestalt therapy with the two of you. Thank you so much. This was indeed lovely. Great to be with both of you. And Stephanie, the fact that you are getting a podcast series going, I think is a, is a, it's a nice contribution. Ah, thank yeah. you. I'm trying to bring Gestalt to the masses. So yes. hopefully, hopefully we can, we can um, share what we love so much more with other um, up and coming therapists who might be interested in, in joining our fabulous little world.